Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word." that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we ask now as we attend to Matthew chapter 2, that you would come by the power of the Holy Spirit and illumine this your precious word, that on the wings of that spirit who illumines this word, would you send this word into our hearts? that it might change us and transform us. 
that we might today read, mark, learn, and even inwardly digest this your word. All for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, it's hard to believe we're at the end of a year and the beginning of a new year is on the horizon. I hope you're ready, because ready or not, here we go. Now, some of you are a little surprised that we're still in the Gospel of, of Matthew. That's understandable. This was our, our Advent series, after all, name above all names. But we're continuing in our Advent series into Christmas all the way up to Epiphany, which we will um, celebrate next week together on January the 7th. And then some of you have been asking me, some of you like to get those um, scriptural journal Bibles, you know what I'm talking about, where you can buy the individual Bible book and then take notes in there. And so you're always asking me what it is that I'm, I'm doing and where it is that we're headed. And so for, for those of you who are of that ilk, I'll have you know that on January the 14th, we will begin a five-week series in the pastoral epistle of Titus. Uh, we'll begin on January 14th with actually a very special Sunday in the life of this congregation. Just previous to this service, you, uh, the Cornerstone congregation, elected unanimously two new ruling elders to serve as representatives and as leaders within this fellowship. Praise the Lord for that. And on January the 14th, we will actually have the privilege to install those two men into the work of ministry to become official ruling elders within this body. It seems appropriate to set apart that time and even as we begin to grow as a church into 2024 to spend a little time in the pastoral epistles. They're known for instructing us in the life of the church. And in fact, our theme in the letter of Titus will be growing in godliness as the church. So we'll begin a new series here in just a few weeks, and so it seems appropriate as we walk through Christmas and Epiphany together to not leave fast the Gospel of Matthew, but to spend two weeks in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. In fact, traditionally in the life of the church, uh, this Sunday would mark what is called the Massacre of the Innocents. December the 27th in the church calendar is traditionally the day where the church would celebrate the massacre of the innocents, which you just read in case you're like, what in the world is that? You just read about it here in Matthew chapter 2. It's when Herod slaughtered all of the baby boy children in Bethlehem under the age of two years old. And remarkably, in the in the church calendar, we move from the good news of Jesus' birth right into the horrible and gruesome news of the genocidal attack from King Herod upon the Lord Jesus Christ, a desperate, insane act to try to remove this king of the Jews who have been born within the domain of King Herod. Now, for some of us, as you hear that, and as you know, Matthew is borrowing deeply from the book of Genesis, you'll remember that all the way through the book of Genesis, we're looking for the seed that is going to crush the head of the serpent. That's the prophecy that is given in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman will come and will one day crush the head of the serpent. But throughout the book of Genesis, if you're tracing it, you're actually seeing the development of these two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the 
of the serpent. You have, you have the promises that are given to, to Abraham, and you have his son Isaac, and then you also have Ishmael. And you have these two lines that run through the pages of, of Genesis all the way to the end. You can even go back right from the garden, right from the get-go. You have Cain and Abel. You have Noah and the rest of the world. You have these very clear representations of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And over and over, the seed of the woman, this seed of promise through the book of Genesis is in crisis. Always, is, is, it seems, is in crisis. We're waiting for the birth of Isaac, for instance. And Sarah is really old, right? And we don't know if this promise is going to come to fruition. And then we have, we have wives who are the seed of the, the woman who are taken into captivity by foreign uh, rulers. And we're curious as to whether the seed will actually be born from the, from the line of which God has promised. All the way through the book of Genesis, there's this crisis of the seed. Well, as you see, as we get into Matthew, Matthew chapter 2 is the continuation of the story of the crisis of the seed. Here is the very seed of the woman who has come to crush the head of the serpent. And here is the seed of the serpent, none other than King Herod himself, after to destroy the child. There's lots to speak of here in Matthew with regards to the fulfillments that trace all the way back to the Old Testament. Did you notice that over and over in our reading? How the fulfillments from, uh, from Micah and the fulfillments from Jeremiah and other prophets like Isaiah are given to us here in Matthew chapter 2, and Matthew's always telling us, hey, I'm not writing a brand new story. I'm picking up the thread that began so many years ago, all the way back in the book of Genesis. Well, that's why the church, as they would study in church history, the the nativity of the Lord Jesus Christ in Christmas would then move into chapter 2 in Matthew and, and study the recognition that this child who has come is going to constantly be under attack. In fact, if you study the Gospels and you study Acts and you study church history, it's a well-known and documented fact that um, Jesus Christ was always in the crosshairs. He, he was always under attack, which is why his, his servants, his followers, his disciples, they receive exactly what the master received. And we see that throughout church history. And so today, as we look at Matthew chapter 2, with all of that background, uh, playing into this text, I want to look at this theme with you of Jesus Christ, a threat to kings. Why is this baby boy, less than probably two years old at the point of where we are in Matthew chapter 2, why is he such a big threat to King Herod? What's going on here? Well, we want to look and see that these two responses that we actually see in this text, the response of the wise men, who come from a long distance searching for the Christ child in order to worship him, and Herod, who comes searching for the Christ child in order to destroy him, are the two representative responses of the world to the Lord Jesus Christ. The two representative responses of the world to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at any place in church history, you'll see there are those who have come to search for Jesus and to worship him. And there are those who have come to do away with Jesus. And both of them are here in this text. Now there's another group. Maybe you would identify yourself in that group. And this is the group that could care less about Jesus. You're not really wanting to destroy him or do away with him. You're definitely not here to worship him. Um, you, you just are indifferent uh, towards him. 
But that is only true of someone if they don't understand who Jesus is, and they don't understand what Jesus claims, and they don't understand what Jesus demands. For as soon as you understand that this Jesus who has come as the Savior of the world is also the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and whom every knee will bow and tongue will confess that he is Lord, all of a sudden you have to figure out what you think about him. Because he certainly has thoughts about you and the demands that he has placed upon you. It's usually at that point where we either, either decide he's worthy of our worship or we got to do away with him. Now, for our purposes today, I want to ask that general question. Why is Jesus a threat to kings and to kingdoms? Why was Claudius and Nero and Domitian in the first century, always after the Christians, always attacking them in first century Rome? Why was Christianity such a threat? Why was its founder, Christ, such a threat? Well, in order to answer that question, we've got to look at the villain. The villain of our text today, which is King Herod. For it is very clear that Herod saw Jesus as a major threat and that we need to do away with him. Now, to answer that question, why did he see him as a major threat? We need to learn a little bit about Herod. This is Herod the Great. He's known as Herod the Great for good reason. He was a highly successful political ruler who was the catalyst for the building of grand cities in Rome, cities like Caesarea, he was the mastermind behind remarkable architectural structures like the, the Hippodome, and he even oversaw the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple. In fact, under Herod the Great's rule, uh, the regent of Rome of which he was in charge experienced remarkable flourishing, flourishing from a cultural standpoint, flourishing from an economic uh, standpoint. It was a region that experienced a great degree of peace. Now, because of that, let's put ourselves in, well, Herod's shoes for only a minute. Here you hear from these wise men, these foreigners who have come from the east, and they now tell you about a king that's been born within your domain of which you know nothing about. And according to these pilgrim wise men who have come maybe thousands of miles, he is actually, this baby born, king of the Jews. Now, how do you receive that news as Herod? Well, you receive that news as threatening, for the Jews are actually under your political kingship. These are the people that you actually rule. Now, add to that that these distant visitors, these wise men, have come hundreds of miles, maybe thousands, not to see you. And you are the king of the region. They've come rather to worship some unnamed baby that they themselves are looking for guidance to find, who they believe is king of the Jews and whom they've come to pay homage and to give worship. Now, when you begin to understand that, you understand why we're told in verse 3 in the text that Herod is troubled. He is troubled. 
If what these wise men say are true, then he has a threat within his domain. He has a rival king, a competitor who has been born within his region. He is at this moment the political appointee of Rome over the Jews. So he is in a way of speaking the king of the Jews. But at this one whom the Old Testament has prophesied is really the king of the Jews by right, then the threat to Herod's position and power is real. Who knows, this child might grow up and lead a coup that will overthrow Herod's uh, rule and all of his kingship and all that he's worked for, all of the benefits and power and, and blessings and privileges that he's enjoyed will be lost. That's what's running through Herod's mind. And I take you into Herod's mind for only a moment. We don't want to stay there too long to show you how worried and troubled, well, the mind of Herod actually is. Despite all of his success as a ruler, if you were to read a, a biography of King Herod, you would come to the conclusion that this man is a, is a megalomaniac. Um, th this man is maniacal. And he is a man filled with uh, paranoia. This is a man who thought it uh, nothing to eradicate the, the dynasty previous to him so that he would have no one living that would be related in any way to those who might be a threat to his throne. He killed more than 300 of the Sanhedrin, the religious uh, ruling class of the day, due, due to disagreements and, and, uh, and tug-of-wars over who's in control of, of this or that. He even executed his own wife, well, one of his ten wives, more than one of his ten wives, and he executed his mother-in-law, several of his, of his sons. I mean, this, is, this man is crazy, and he's paranoid. And now there's a king, unbeknownst to him, within his region. No wonder he's troubled. What does a king do when he finds that a rival king has been born within his region? What can we anticipate is going to happen? Well, conflict, it's pretty simple, isn't it? And that's exactly what we see in the text. Herod puts Jesus in the crosshairs. He is about to search for the child. Same language used to the wise men, interestingly, but with a very different objective. He's not going to find the child to worship him, though he eludes lies in that way in the midst of the text. He is there to destroy him. And when he can't get his hands, so to speak, specifically on the child, what does he decide to do? Well, it makes perfect sense to him to just go murder every baby boy in the region. This is go on a murderous genocidal rampage and destroy every uh, male child under the age of two in the Bethlehem uh, region. I'm sure anyone would come to that rational conclusion. Remarkably, as we look at Herod in this nightmare of a man and of a ruler, it's remarkable that all of this perfectly illustrates what's wrong with the human heart. Actually, what's wrong with, well, you and, and me. Now, I, maybe I hear an objection, an objection brewing in your, your own mind. Did you really just compare me to Herod the Great? Can, I, can we really say that he illustrates what's going on in, in my heart and in, in your heart? Well, I, I'm sympathetic to your uh, objection. Uh, there's a part of me that wants to say that it's not true as well. 
I mean, you aren't like Herod. You haven't killed 300 of the Sanhedrin. You haven't murdered your, your spouse yet, and you haven't, you, you haven't done away with any of your, your children, at least that we're aware of. And, and, and so how is it that I would have the gall to suggest that, that studying Herod actually gives us a glimpse into you and me? And maybe gives us a bit of the, the answer to what you and I need as we look to 2024 together. Well, there's a place. There's a place in Flannery O'Connor's writing, our very favorite Southern uh, short story writer, where she speaks on writing and she says, for those who are hard of hearing, we must shout. And for those who are blind, we must draw large and startling figures. Now, when O'Connor wrote that, she was writing of the culture and the day and time in which she was in. And she was, she was meaning to say, people of our time are hard of hearing. People of our time are, are blind to the truth. And if you're wanting to grasp their attention, you're going to need to shout a little. And you're going to need to draw large and startling figures. Herod is a large and startling figure, you understand. He's someone that when we look at him in the extremes, we think to ourselves, there's nothing, there's nothing like us here. And yet when we begin to dig into his heart a bit, we begin to understand that we see in technicolor what is actually we're often blind to in our own lives. That when we look at the extreme case, the startling figure of Herod, we actually can return to our own hearts and see there's something scarily familiar that's very close to home, even residing within us. Well, you've had a cautionary tale or two, undoubtedly, in your life. You've heard the story of this person who became addicted to drugs and alcohol and destroyed their, their lives. And, and, and you had that little thought in the back of your mind. Well, I'm glad that's not me, but ooh, I see how it could have been. I see how it could be. You hear of that person in business who has been swindling money and is guilty of fraud, and you say to yourself, oh, I, I'm glad that's not me, but oh, I see how it could be. And it is to you like a cautionary tale. That's King Herod, you see. King Herod is a cautionary tale. Underneath all the violence, what's really going on with this man? Underneath all the paranoia, what's his spiritual situation? Well, I'll tell you. It's quite simple, really. That which is most precious to King Herod, that which he lives for, namely being King Herod, all of its prestige, all of its power and position, that which he lives for, is being threatened by the presence of King Jesus. All that he lives for, all that he cares about, all of his purpose and value and meaning in life is under the gun when he hears that another king has been born. Herod's identity as a person is wrapped up in the position that he occupies. It's it's consumed by the power and the prestige that he gets the chance to wield and enjoy. How can we be sure? Well, just look at him. 
as soon as he's threatened, he goes insane. He does ridiculous, maniacal things. He becomes ridiculously violent. I mean, let's paint it in its perspective. We don't know how old exactly Jesus is here in Matthew chapter 2, but by virtue of reading the text, it's right to estimate that he's somewhere under two years of, of age. He's a, let's be generous, he's a toddler. He's a toddler. And Herod is willing to do whatever it takes, even slaughtering hundreds of innocent male children in Bethlehem, even weakening his own empire by eradicating a large number of male children just to eliminate any possible threat to his throne. This man is consumed with the preciousness of being King Herod. He won't let anything stand in his way. A few years ago, Jonathan Lehman wrote a book called Why Do the Nations Rage? It was a, a book that was seeking to explore, give a reason for the uptick in division and polarization that we see in our own country, especially in the political sphere. And one of the things that Lehman said in, in that book is he says that when we are watching the public uh, square, when we're, when we're watching uh, the culture, so to speak, we're actually seeing, as he called it, a battleground of the gods. Battleground of the gods. We're seeing on display the things that people live for, the things that they care so much about to the nth degree that they are willing to literally destroy people around them in order to get it. He said, what we see very often in this context is a battleground for our gods. It's not unlike what Henry Van Til said years ago when he said that culture, you know what culture really is? Culture is religion externalized. It's that which we are most devoted to, made visible in the public square. In other words, it's a picture of what we worship. It's a picture of what we care about. Why is Jesus a threat to kings? Because he's the king. Because he's the king. He doesn't claim to be a king among kings. He claims to be the king of all kings. He claims to be the ruler of all rulers. He is the Lord of lords. You see, Herod actually understood something in the midst of all of his paranoia. He understood that if Jesus is king of the Jews, then he can't be. And if he is king of the Jews, then Jesus can't be. And he made his decision. I will be king of the Jews. And I will destroy anything that will rival me. I mean, Jesus must go. Well, thankfully, we're not like King Herod. Or are we? How does this really relate to us? Well, there aren't many kings and queens in this, in this room, I, I don't think. Um, I'd like to meet you if, if you are a king or a queen following the, the service. But you know what is in this room? A lot of people who think that they're kings and queens. A lot of people who live to try to control every part of your life. And that nothing would stand in your way. 
people who position ourselves in order to call the shots as much as possible to influence all outcomes. Why? For our own favor. For our own advantage. We may not go insanely violent, at least not yet, when our reputations and our comforts and our power and our money, the things that we worship, are threatened, but we do get angry, don't we? We yell. We have seething resentment when someone at work stands in the way of what we're after. We'll claim that it's on principle, but really it's just selfishness. It's the truth of our hearts and motivations were known. And then when it doesn't work out, we spin it in some way. We tell lies about it, and then we throw a pity party. Woe is me. I'm such a victim in this life. Things are just not as they ought to be. And the truth is, you know what's going on inside of us? We're upset that we're not king. We're upset that we're not the queen. Because we desperately want to be. It's ironic that Matthew's point in his gospel up to this point is to drive home the reality that Jesus is king. Why did he give us the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1? So that he could trace the lineage of Jesus to King David. To show you that he's of the the bloodline, he's of the lineage of David. This is the true king. And what that means is, is that if he is the true king, then we're not. That we're not. And what that means is that we're subjects. We're under his rulership. We're in a submissive posture. We're people who have been crafted to do his bidding, not him do ours. I was struck a few years ago in reading Marva Dawn's book on the Sabbath. Really, it was a throwaway comment, but it really cut me to the heart. In that book, she says, you know that whenever we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Whenever we pray those words, which we pray every week here at Cornerstone. Whenever we pray, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we're simultaneously praying, thy kingdom fall, my kingdom fall. Lord, unbuild my kingdom. Unbuild the places where I have tried to wrench from you the authority that you should have in my life. Unbuild the areas in my life where I am controlling and manipulative and angling and subversive in order to get my way. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, I was... I was convicted again this week, right? The Lord had me in this passage, and well, this is the week where Nate annually reviews his year, and he thinks about his year to come, and all of the amazing things I'm going to do in the year ahead, all of the amazing ways I'm going to be sanctified by the end of the year. And I make resolutions and commitments and plans, and and I think there's lots of good in all of that. But as I was praying through those resolutions and and those commitments and giving them to the Lord, there was you know spiritual stuff popping up in my heart, and I'm just tracing some of it. I'm saying to myself, like as I'm looking over these resolutions, are these resolutions like really about the Lord and about sanctification, about His glory, or are these ways that I can be better in order to get what it is I want? out of life? And the answer was yes. There's a lot of flesh in these. You know, why why do I want to be healthier? 
know, why do I, I want to be smarter? Why, why do I want to achieve this or that? Well, I can say, well, I want to serve the Lord. And there's a measure of truth to that. But there's another truth. At the same time, operating in my soul is that I like what it says about me. Or I like where it'll get me. I think I'll be in a place to leverage more for the ends that I want. And the question that really we have to ask ourselves whenever we're thinking about our, our lives and we're plotting and we're, 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 we've got goals and we've got aims and objectives is, have we really submitted those things to the will of the Lord and it is our desire to truly please the Lord? Do we live for Him? Like, for instance, you always find that your years are different than you anticipate them being. I certainly, I certainly do. The Lord always has many surprises for us uh, every year. I, I, it's always, I you know, read, reread my pastoral notes for the beginning of January 2020. And I thought, you had no idea what you were saying. You had no idea what the year was going to bring. And you had just all kinds of excitement about this year. It, it, none of it was exciting. It was terrible. And, of course, the Lord did amazing things, right? And there was horrendous things. Do you believe that the things that the Lord, the King, brings into your life are even more important than the things that you've planned for your life? Uh, like, what if, you know, not on my resolutions this year is a terminal illness? It might be on the Lord's list. Would that be okay with you? Are you okay with His Lordship if that's the way it looks? Not on my resolution this year is getting fired by you, Cornerstone. Oh, that would be a heartbreaking thing. Should the Lord grant that for whatever reason? Would I receive that from His will? Look at the most painful things that you could experience from the hand of King Jesus, from the one who's on the throne, whose decree has planned the end from the beginning. Do you trust Him enough to say what your hand gives is even better than what my mind would plan or what my heart would want? For you are after the deeper things. You're after my heart. You're after all of me. We don't think of King Jesus in this way, do we? But that's exactly what the Scripture teaches us. How would we become a people who are actually submissive to King Jesus? Who actually live as his subjects? Well, we, we're hinted at here, and we're going to talk about the wise men more next week together, but it's hinted at here in the wise men because you notice what they do. Here's what these wise men do. They come, they, they travel, they travel further than any of us traveled for, for Christmas, I can assure you. Likely thousands of miles from the east. They've taken months out of their, their lives and their, their calendars. We have no idea if their families have, have traveled with them. This is an incredibly expensive uh, sacrifice that they have made. And notice that when they get to Jesus, 
they've got gifts for him. They've got gifts for this royal son, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Again, we'll talk more about those next week. But notice that you, know, you would think coming, like visiting, might be enough if you've come thousands of miles. But no, they're going to come and they're going to give the precious, most precious gifts to the Lord. And then they end up on their face. We're told that they fall to the ground, prostrate before baby Jesus, for toddler Jesus. Why is it they do that? Why do they go through all this pain? Why do they go through all this sacrifice? Because, well, let me tell you why. Jesus is more precious to them than all those things. Than the gold, than the frankincense, and the myrrh. More precious than the months taken out of their life. More precious than the miles that they traveled. More, more precious than all the sacrifices that they made. For them to come and see Jesus and to worship him was the end all and the be all of their life because he is their Lord. He is their Lord and he is worthy of their worship. Do you know, we will never live as subjects in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that he's caused us until he becomes precious to us. More precious to us than anything. We will not receive from him the painful providences that he brings into our life to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ if Christ is not precious to us. If Christ is not precious to us. Do you see, the treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh for the wise men were like nothing compared to the treasure that is Jesus. They are giving these things and making this journey because for Jesus, well, he is everything to them. They are doing this not from a place of have to. They are doing this from a place of sheer joy. And that's the life and the heart of the disciples that we want to be. The kind of followers of the Lord Jesus Christ that we want to be. How is it that Jesus will be so precious to us that we would make whatever sacrifices that he would call us to in order to serve and to follow him? Well, you've got to get to know him. And you've got to see the immensity of his love for you. That's really where we need to start, isn't it? the beginning of the year, to know the immensity of what it is that Christ has displayed in his love for you. Well, what was that? Well, you've been professing it all Advent long, and you're professing it now into Christmas. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Do you remember how it goes? Though Jesus, though he, the Son of God, was in the form of God, notice this, he did not count equality with God. A thing to be grasped. Let me ask you. Did Herod think his kingship worth grasping for? Did Herod think his prestige and his power and his honor and his glory as a Roman king was worth killing people for? You better believe he did. Though he was in the form of God, he did not. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself. By taking the form of a baby. By being formed in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. Do you see the irony, don't you? Herod is willing to kill to make himself king. Jesus is willing to be killed. In love for his people. Where then he will be enthroned by his father on high. Now who, what king do you want to serve? 
What king do you want to serve? This is the king. And do you see the price that he paid? Do you see the price that he paid? He gave himself up on the cross that he might what? Purchase you with his own blood. How will, how will the love of Christ increase in your life and the preciousness of Christ increase in your life? Well, there are several ways, but one of the central and most formative is to know the extent of his love for you. That he thought it worthwhile to give up all of his privileges, prerogatives, and honor to go through a life of suffering, to be spent completely in the fulfillment of the mission of his Father in order to redeem you as his people, to live forever with you as his treasured possession. He thought none of that a waste. To us, it looks like an extravagant waste for people like us, but for him, the God who sees us all the way to the bottom, he says, that's my people, and nothing will stand in my way to redeem them. And that doesn't mean I'm going to go about slaughtering everyone around me. It's going to mean that I will get slaughtered. And while I am, I'm going to look out upon them and I'm going to say, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. You know, the remarkableness of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and his preciousness displayed in the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you begin to ponder and meditate those and truly take those in and feed and feast on them throughout 2024, you know what will begin to happen. Well, the idols that you actually live for, even the ones you baptize as Christian ones, will begin to grow strangely dim. And all of the reasons that the lack of satisfaction and joy and contentment and refreshment that's at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ which has been so missing in 2023, you'll begin to realize that Jesus is a living water that brings the refreshment, the life, the joy that even wells up within you that will leave you asking the question, how can I not give all for a Savior who has loved me like this? I told this story some years ago now of one of my very first pastoral mentors who would tell the story of his time in Vietnam, a time when he was shot down in a, a fighter pilot plane and landed in the ocean. And he thought this was the end of his life. He was severely injured. He spent months in the hospital following this accident. As he was beginning to, to drown uh, clinging to what wreckage he could get his hands uh, upon, uh, a Vietnamese soldier um, showed up on a, on a little boat and jumped in and rescued him and brought him to the shore. And as his, his lungs had filled up with, with, with water and he had gone unconscious for a period of time, they, they resuscitated him. They gave him mouth to mouth. And as he came to, he just barely glimpses the man. The man realizes he's going to be okay. And the man takes off, never sees him again. And he would say, he would say to, he would say to me, he would say to us as he was teaching to us, he says, what could I give my, that man to repay him? Could I give him all of my money? Would that be enough? Could I give him all of my energy? Would that be enough? Could I give him all of my days? Would that be enough? 
He says, there was no way that I could repay this man. For this man has given me my very life. How much more is that true of the Lord Jesus Christ? My dear friend, Larry Goff died a handful of years ago. That life that was saved by that Vietnamese soldier passed. But today he's in the presence of a Savior who has truly rescued him. And will never let him go. And if you're in Christ today, that Savior is yours. What could he ask of you? It would be too much. Know that your joy is found in doing His bidding in 2024. For there is no precious treasure more precious than the treasure of Jesus Christ, you see. Father in heaven, I would pray that you would prepare us as a congregation to answer the bidding of the Lord Jesus Christ this year. That surprisingly, people within this congregation who have anemic prayer lives would all of a sudden be vibrant in prayer because they see the preciousness of Jesus. Who haven't, who haven't hardly cracked open their Bibles this year. Who haven't thought of serving their, their neighbor or giving towards the poor. For, for us who have lived as if we are the center of the universe, as if we are kings and queens calling all the shots. Lord, would you with your graciousness dethrone us and enthrone yourself on our hearts increasingly this year? Lord, we know that that is not a one-time event, but it is the reality of the daily repentance of what we as believers in Christ must live toward. Would you give us the earnestness of grace to give our lives to it and fashion more of Jesus in the lives of us, your people. Lord, you know in the variety of ways that that needs to be heard and applied right now in this room. Be mindful of it and do not stop short of enthroning yourself and gaining the glory over each of our lives. Hear this prayer, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.